Please open up your copies of the Word to the book of James. As I have opportunity to open up the Word here at our church, I'll be anticipating reading through this short book of James, and today we'll be considering the first four verses. So please read along with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray for God's blessing on the word. Heavenly Father, we are reminded, even this morning, Lord, that our most earnest attempt, Lord, to offer acceptable praises will fall short. So we thank you, Lord, for our intercessor, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that his promised presence, Lord, is here, where there are two or three gathered together. And Lord, we also thank you that you give your spirit, Lord, when it is asked. And Lord, we pray that you would give your spirit this afternoon, both in the preaching of the word, that this would not be just the, the words of a man, Lord, but that you would um, send your spirit to make these living words, the words of life. Lord, send your spirit to the, bless the hearing of the word as well, Lord, that your, your saints would be edified, that they'd be encouraged, that they would be brought even closer, Lord, to being in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those who are apart from you, Lord, that you would draw them, that you would soften hardened hearts, Lord, and work in unexpected and mighty ways this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Well, I always find it interesting when I go to yard sales and estate sales to look through the books that people are selling. And I feel like by looking at people's home libraries, you can learn a lot about them. These perfect strangers, you look at the books that they own and you learn a little about who they are. But one genre that really transcends all these different varieties of home libraries are how-to books. No matter what you're into, there's a how-to book out there for you. You can go into a bookstore and find how-to books on just about anything from how to speak Portuguese, how to manage your household budget, how to build your own canoe. Now, a few years ago, I was given a how-to book as a Christmas present, and it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek gift. And the title of the book is The Worst Case Scenario, Survival Handbook. And each chapter contains detailed, often illustrated, how-to guides of the most ridiculous far-fetched topics, including how to escape from quicksand, how to jump onto a moving freight train, how to wrestle an alligator. Now, these chapters, though they explain these things in great detail, they're clearly meant for more of entertainment than for anything practical because clearly not many of us will ever, or at least I hope none of us will ever be in a situation where we have to jump off a freight train or wrestle an alligator. However, there are situations which every one of us here are guaranteed to face. Some situations that we can't avoid no matter who we are, no matter when you were born, your age, your race, your gender, your social status, there are some things that we're going to have to face. There's gonna be things that delight you there's going to be things in life that discourage you. In life, there's going to be peaks and there's going to be valleys. There are going to be seasons of peace and prosperity, and there's also going to be seasons of great grief and trial. And so unlike this far-fetched how-to guidebook that I mentioned before, a how-am-I-to-respond-to-trials handbook is practical for everyone. But for Christians, the question needs to be phrased, how am I, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, as a believer, how am I to respond to trials? So today, as we open up these first few verses of James, we're going to see how God's own word answers this crucial question. So consider the first verse with me in the context of this book. James 1.1, we read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So the opening verse of this book reveals in the first place the genre. It's a letter, or an epistle as we call them. And we find in this opening verse the same elements that we'd expect to find in any epistle. We have the author, we have the recipients, and we have a greeting. So consider the author, first of all. Comparatively speaking, 
James's introduction here is pretty brief, especially if you read a letter from Paul. Sometimes Paul has several verses, and he usually asserts his authority to write that letter, saying that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet in James's case here, we read simply, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has led to great debate over the centuries, and perhaps you're aware that there is a great debate as to who exactly is the James that wrote this book. And it would take far more time than I have this afternoon to open up these arguments. And if you want to talk to me afterwards about those, I'm happy to unpack some of that. Suffice to say that the overwhelming consensus of biblical scholars is that this book was written by James, the brother of the Lord Jesus. We first read of this James in Matthew 13, when Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And those there ask, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And though the Bible refers to him as the brother of Jesus, we should make sure to understand that he is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the son of both Mary and Joseph. And yet, despite having this great privilege of growing up in the same household as the sinless son of God, we read that he was not a believer. None of the brothers were. John 7, 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. And even when Jesus was nailed to the cross, the only member of Jesus' physical family that was there on the hill was Mary. James and his other half-brothers are, are not mentioned at all here. However, we do have reason to believe that James was one who witnessed the resurrected Savior. Paul speaks of him in 1 Corinthians. He says that Jesus, being resurrected, first appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And in verse 7 he says, Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. So it seems likely that this is the point in James's life when he started to be a true follower and a believer of, the, of Jesus. He stopped thinking of him as his half-brother and started following him as his Savior and his Lord. And from this point on, as the church in Jerusalem grew after Pentecost, so James was elevated to a great position of authority. In extra-biblical extra writings, he's known as James the Just. And Paul describes him as being one of the three pillars of the church. We read about him in Acts 15, what we call the Jerusalem Council, when there were some Jews at that time who took issue with welcoming uncircumcised Gentiles into the church. And James spoke up as one who had great authority in the church. And he spoke as one who had a deep familiarity with the scriptures as he uses them to defend Peter's position. Now, some would argue that surely, if it was the Lord's brother who wrote this letter, he would have identified himself. He would have said something like, James the Just, an elder of the church of Jerusalem, and the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet James does not resort to name-dropping here. For one thing, James would have been so well-known to the people he wrote to that he didn't need any other qualifications. And also, he recognized that his familial relationship with Jesus gave him no authority in the church. Instead, he introduces himself humbly as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he had a preeminent position in the church, he introduces himself as a savior and he imitates his Lord who came not to be served, but to serve. He writes not on his own authority, but he writes on the authority of the one whom he serves. So even here in this first verse, there's wisdom to be found. For we have to ask ourselves, how is it that we want to be known to the world? How is it that we want people to remember us and talk about us? Is it our aim to have people singing our praises? Do we want people to remember us by listing off all our contributions, all of the achievements of our life? I would say that one of the Christian's greatest joys in this world, and one of the greatest things that we can aspire to, is to be known and remembered as one who could truly be said about them that they were a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, next consider, who is it that James is writing to? In the first verse it says, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So, this twelve tribes, it could be interpreted metaphorically, it could be understood that the 12 tribes are re representing the entirety of the church, the spiritual Israel. But it seems much more likely, especially knowing the position that James had in the Jerusalem church, that he's writing to national Jews here. But further, he calls them his brothers in verse 2. So it's not to Jews in general that he writes, 
but it's to converted Jews. It's to believers. It's to those who had put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And this is what the earliest church was. The local church was the universal church at that time. And it should be noted from the context of the epistle that these were believers who endured many, many trials. He says that they are the 12 tribes in dispersion. And by this he means that there are those who had been exiled from their homelands. They had to flee for their lives after the martyrdom of Stephen. You remember in Acts 8 that we read that Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so these early converted Jews at the time were scattered throughout these neighboring lands. And yet even when they were free from Saul, they were strangers. They were exiles living in a strange land. And so their trials were great. They left behind perhaps fruitful careers. They were literally being chased off. And so they had escaped with their lives. They, they very likely took very little bit with them. Little money, few possessions. Perhaps their trials were as they laid up at night. They couldn't sleep because of the fear that they'd be discovered. Or perhaps it, they were tormented by the knowledge that their family, who they loved, was now estranged from them because of their faith. It's likely that he writes to those who once worshipped with him there in Jerusalem, to those who he knew personally and remembers having times where he could greet them with a holy kiss. Yet now they've been dispersed and they're no longer with that church that loved them. And perhaps in this moment of, of trial, some of these Jewish believers had cried out, Lord, why me? Why does God allow his beloved church to suffer like this? Perhaps they cried out, how am I as a Christian? to respond when my life seems to be more full of troubles than blessings. So the first way in which James answers this practical question of how is a Christian to live really focuses on how a believer should properly and biblically respond to trials. So as we come to verse 2, I'm calling this a perplexing imperative. And he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And notice the situation when you meet trials of various kinds. James doesn't say if you meet trials of various kinds, but he says when you meet trials of various kinds. <clears throat> Facing trials is a reality of life, and Christians are not exempt from it more than anyone else. And it's a truth that runs completely contrary to what you might hear if you turn on the TV and listen to one of those televangelists that preaches the health and wealth gospel. They would have you believe that Christians are given a get-out-of-trial-free card that exempts them from trouble and it guarantees them a peaceful life. Yet, any true believer can testify that even after coming to faith, maybe more so after coming to faith, that we're going to continue to encounter things that try us. There'll be things that discourage us and disappoint us, and things that pain us and puzzle us. We're sometimes tempted to think that we can escape or someday we're going to graduate out of a troubled life. Take, for instance, young parents. They're struggling to scrap, scrap together three hours of sleep because of their, their, their baby. And they think, oh, once we get through this, this teething phase, our troubles are going to be done. Yet it's not long before they're dealing with an obstinate toddler saying, no. And they think, oh, once we can just speak rationally, once our child can understand us, they're going to learn to obey. Our troubles are going to be gone. Then a few years later, that family is driving their kids from this thing to that thing, and they think, oh, when our oldest is old enough to drive themselves, our troubles are going to be gone. Yet it's not long until their children are grown, and they're out looking for jobs, and they're looking for spouses. And those same parents are once again losing sleep at night. This time they're worrying, oh, and praying, if my, only my child can find a godly spouse, if only they can find a job that will provide for them, then our troubles will be gone. I'm not trying to minimize the joys of parenting in any way, but I'm, try, I'm trying to illustrate that the course that we have to run, we're never going to graduate out of our trials. The course we have to run is full of ups and full of downs. It's a reality that makes the Christian long for deliverance from this sin-stained world. For as long as we walk on this side of eternity, we are going to be no stranger to trials. Well, not only are these trials certain, but they're also abrupt. James says, when you meet, or maybe some of your Bibles say, encounter or fall into trials. 
And this is a, a verb in Greek, peripipto, which only happens three times in the New Testament. One time here. The other place it's used is in Luke 10, when Jesus is teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and this is the verb here, he fell among robbers. This man was not setting out to confront robbers. He was not a vigilante. And there's no indication that he was on the alert for any danger on the road. He was simply walking from Jericho to Jerusalem. Perhaps there were accommodations waiting for him when he got to Jerusalem. Maybe he had plans to keep once he arrived. This encounter with the robbers was unexpected. It came upon him suddenly and hazardously. And the only other time that this verb is used is in Acts 27, when Paul is being transported on the sea to Rome. And we read, but striking a reef, and there's that verb there, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. So the ship that carried Paul uh, to Malta had its bow pointing to the shore. They had, no, they had no idea there was a reef in front of them. Their sights were set ahead when suddenly this trial came upon them without warning. And so James uses the same verb here in his opening discourse to show that the trials that we encounter are not predictable. Sometimes they come upon us when we least expect them. We make our plans and we set our course. We set out on our way without any expectation of running into any type of obstacle. Yet these trials come upon us suddenly and abruptly. Well, notice also as we talk about these trials that he calls them trials of various kinds. He doesn't give details about, well, this is the type of trial that we're going to count as joy. But rather, he intentionally paints with a broad stroke. He includes all types of trials. And just as James's own readers suffered in many different ways, our trials can also take many different forms. And our minds perhaps think first of what we might consider larger trials, these things that do come upon us suddenly and shake our lives. We think of losing jobs, or loved ones, or receiving a, a terrible diagnosis of a terminal disease. Yet sometimes our trials can also take the form of a long-term or even a lifelong struggle. Paul mentions how he was given a thorn in the flesh that likely plagued him for the rest of his life. It could be a, a, long, a long life physical disability that's our trial, or a challenging situation. It could be that we're dealing with a prolonged period of loneliness or depression. It could be an ongoing struggle with a coworker or a family member, or even an internal struggle with sin or with addiction. So when James speaks of these trials, he gives no caveat. He excludes no category of trial. And it's not my intention to dwell unnecessarily long on the specifics of our trials, because I know that everyone who sits here in this room has known past trials. Perhaps you're in the trenches now. Perhaps you're facing real and present trial, even today. And each one of us can expect to face future trials of various kinds. Yet James doesn't shy away from the subject. He broaches it right off the bat in this letter. And he does it not to discourage his, his readers, but to point them, to direct them to a right and proper understanding so that they could appropriately respond to the past and present and future trials that they will face. He wants his readers to know that all trials, regardless of their shape and their size, they're brought about by God. And that whether we suffer in the same way as the person sitting next to us, or whether our trials last for a moment, or whether they last for a lifetime, that God has a purpose behind our trials. And it is therefore our responsibility to respond to them appropriately. So we come to the next point, to that response. He says, count it all joy. Now, we could respond incorrectly to trials. In that moment when we're caught suddenly off guard by a new trial, how do we naturally tend to respond? What does our inner man want to do? Well, unbelievers and those who deny the sovereignty of God, they chalk some of these things up to just random misfortunes. They're just chance events. Yet believers... Even believers can respond inappropriately to trial. Perhaps the most common way is when we cry out, why me? We say, why is this thing happening to me? We think, what have I done to deserve a trial such as this? 
Is there some sin that I've committed that has brought this thing upon me? And this was the understanding of the disciples of Jesus in John 9 when they met the man who was born blind. And they asked Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? We're so quick to want to cast blame in these situations. We think, surely this must be someone's fault. We blame ourselves. Sometimes we second-guess our choices and we, the regrets that we have. Sometimes we blame others, or worst of all, we blame God. Remember the companions of Job when they came and they counseled him. They, they thought, surely this must be the result of some grievous sin in Job's life. Or who can forget the words of Job's wife in that moment when they had lost all and she came to him and she told him to curse God and die. And perhaps James was aware that some of his brothers who were now living in foreign lands were responding with dismay to their trials or with confusion or with angry blame shifting. And so he outlines right at the outside of his book here the proper and biblical response to these situations. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, what a shocking statement. We're so familiar with this passage that sometimes we don't think about this. But surely as these readers got this letter and the condition they were in and they see, count it all joy, surely this raised some eyebrows. For it's easy enough to smile when things are going well, to enjoy life when life is good. But what James is asking seems impossible at first glance. We can imagine him writing something more along the lines of, press on, be strong, put your head down, stiffen that upper lip, persevere, but count it all joy. Notice this is an imperative. This is, this is a command. He says, consider it. Maybe your verses have count it all joy. This implies a change of a mindset. James isn't directing his suffering brothers and how they should feel about their present situation. He's telling them how they should be thinking about it. It's a verb that implies focusing your attention on something, holding it in front of your eyes, and that after gazing at it, perhaps you'll see it in a different light. And James is telling those believers who have now been scattered abroad that this is the way they ought to think about their trials. They are to consider them all joy. He's asking his brothers to, be, to look beyond the short-term grief of their trials to the long-term results that God is working through these trials. He lifts the eyes of his brothers from the here and now to the one who lovingly brings them into and through their trials. Now, when James says to count it all joy, we have to be careful about this word all. All doesn't mean that the only thing that we should feel is joy. It's not joy exclusively. And it's not to say that it is wrong to feel grief over our trials. Our trials hurt. And the grief and the heartache can sometimes be deeper than we thought imaginable. At times of great trial, we feel crushed in our spirits. It's difficult sometimes to think of anything else. And it is not wrong for us to feel sadness, to feel grief over our trials. You can imagine how counterproductive it would be to come up to somebody in that moment of grief and say, count it all joy, smile. We're counseled in Romans 12 to rejoice with those who rejoice, but to also weep with those who weep. In Psalm 34, we're reminded that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. There is a right time for us to weep and to mourn, and we remember well how Jesus reacted when he spoke to Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus. In John eleven thirty three. 33, it, it reads, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So James is not saying that in our trials we're to screw on a happy face and, and smile all the time. All joy doesn't mean that all we feel is joy exclusively. It's rather meant to intensify the word. It's the greatest joy, a superlative joy. We're not talking about a, a burst of emotion like you might feel when your team wins the championship game or when you laugh at a good joke or you open your door and your dog jumps up and licks your face. It's not an emotional response necessarily. This joy that James is speaking of 
is more than an emotional response that fades. And one commentator described it as this. He says this joy is a settled contentment in every situation or an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. And James is not alone in telling believers to count their trials as joy. Peter supports this. In 1 Peter 1.6, he writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And even the Lord Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, he says. When we are called to rejoice in our trials, it's not that we are to somehow delight in the trial itself, but we're directed to look past this present suffering to the end that these trials are bringing about. It's like the mother who suffers through morning sickness and through shifting hormones and labor pains, and yet she counts these things as joy, for she can see past the present difficulties to the end that this is bringing about. She sees that there's a joyous end of a new son or a daughter. Or consider the ultimate example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 speaks of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There was nothing presently joyful about Jesus' trials as he, as he was beaten and humiliated and nailed to the cross. There was nothing inherently joyful about his being abandoned by his disciples or forsaken by his heavenly Father. There is nothing joyful about him taking the wrath of God that we deserved upon himself. Yet he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And so our responsibility as Christians, as those who follow Christ, is to see the end that these trials are achieving and to not merely endure the trials, but to work at finding that settled contentment, to find that thankful trust that God is indeed arranging all of these things. Our sovereign and heavenly Father has a good and glorious purpose for all these trials. So let's consider what that purpose is. I have this under two headings. We'll consider first what it says in, in verse 3, that there's a purpose of perseverance. James writes, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, being able to find this joy, to be able to find this settled contentment and lasting joy through our various trials, it doesn't come naturally. James implies that there is something required, a prerequisite for us, for anyone to have this kind of joy. And immediately after telling them, count all these things as joy, he says, for you know. And this word for connects these two verses. and implies that this knowledge that he's about to write about is a necessary step to be able to rejoice in our trials. Someone without this knowledge would have no reason to feel any joy in their present sufferings. And maybe you'll run across people in your life who seem to be resilient, and they can smile through difficult times. But maybe their reaction stems more from a desire just to be perceived as a happy person. Maybe they want to show a, a strength of character. But ultimately, those without this joy cannot hope to find the joy that James speaks of. Sorry, those without this knowledge can't hope to find the joy that James is writing about here. Yet James is not writing to those who are ignorant. He knows that they know that God has a specific purpose. And so he reminds them of what they already know, that the testing of their faith produces steadfastness. Now notice how James redefines the situation here in verse 3. What he once referred to as encountering trials, now he refers to as the testing of your faith. It's a different angle or perspective on the same issue here. Humanly defined, they're trials. But divi divinely defined, it is the testing of our faith. So what does he mean by the testing of your faith? Well, this is a topic that's found throughout both testaments in the Bible. And in one context, it's used as proving what is in the heart. We were just reading about Hezekiah a few minutes ago. And in 2 Chronicles 32, we read of Hezekiah, how in certain matters God left him to himself. And verse 31 says that he did this 
in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Similarly, in the prologue to Job, God tells Satan to consider his servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth. And Satan responds by asking, does he fear you for no reason? He implies that Job's faith is an untested faith. Life has been too easy for him. He's gotten everything he needs. What trials has he faced? And of course, over the rest of the account of Job, we see how God uses trials, even severe trials, to test Job's faith and to show the genuineness of his heart. Now often, when we encounter these difficult times, the quality of the genuineness of our faith is exposed. Like I said, it's easy to smile when the sun is shining. But when God sends that dark cloud of providence in your life, does, how do you respond? It's easy to sing our praises to God when his providence seems good to us. But when does our song change when that faith is put to the test through trials? So you could argue that this is the context in which James is referring to the testing of your faith. But I think that there's a, a better context that we can take from this. And that's the context of testing as a refining process. The imagery of refining of precious metals is found throughout the Bible. As you may know, gold or silver, when it's mined from the ground, is not a pure metal. It's, it's an ore. And in order for that metal to be purified, it has to be subjected to great heat. And in this process, the ore melts down and the pure metal rises to the surface, leaving behind all the undesirable dross. And it's only through this crucible, it's only through the smelter's furnace, that this metal can be made pure. I believe that it's in this context that Peter speaks of the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. It's a biblical metaphor that these readers would have been very familiar with. They remember the words of Malachi, who spoke of the one who will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So James encourages and he exhorts his church to remember that their present difficulties are not random misfortunes. They're not cruel attacks by a heartless God, but they're God's crucible. And it's out of the depths of his love that God is using these things to purify his saints. You have to remember that the children of God were purchased at a great price. They're valuable to him, much more valuable and more precious to him than gold. And even as a goldsmith desires a metal that is pure, without defect, a metal that is tempered and strengthened by its testing, so too God's purpose in bringing his saints through the furnace of our trials is that we would be purified, that we would be tempered and matured in the faith. And just as the goldsmith will remove impurities bit by bit, so God is also working to refine his people, to remove the sinful impurities of our hearts. The trials that we face sometimes bring these things to the surface, don't they? Through our trials, our Heavenly Father can expose remaining sins and the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes. And he, he removes the fear of man so that the refined saint would be left with only fear of God alone. Sometimes our trials can expose the sin of pride. And he uses trials sometimes to remove those impurities of prideful self-reliance and godlessness, autonomy. And not only does this testing remove our sinful impurities, but it also develops godly moral character that wouldn't be possible without this testing. And in particular here in verse 3, James stresses one aspect of a believer's character that could not develop without this testing, and that is steadfastness. Some of your Bibles may have this word translated as patience, but we need to be careful not to understand this as a, a mere patience, like we tell our kids to be patient as they're waiting to get their desserts in the line at, at lunchtime on Sundays. I prefer the translation that has this word as a patient endurance or perseverance or steadfastness as it's in the ESV. It's a word that implies an active and a strengthened resolve to continue on course, on the correct path, even when it's difficult. One who is steadfast is firmly fixed in place, just like a, a tower that is steadfast is not knocked over by the wind. Or a captain on a ship who is steadfast 
keeps his ship on course, though the waves are pushing him from side to side. And this is a distinct virtue. Christians are distinguished from unbelievers by their steadfastness. It's important to note that we should not expect that trials will work the same effect upon believers and unbelievers alike. The refiner's fire strengthens and it purifies the saints of God, but it does not do the same for the unbelieving world. And Jesus draws special attention to this in his parable of the soils, and particularly as he talks about the seed that fell among the thorns. Listen in in Luke 8, verses 14 and 15. He says, As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast and an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience or perseverance, if you have the New American. For those thorny ground hearers, the cares and the worries of this world only dampen their devotion. They were those who heard the word. They sat in church. Maybe by all outward appearances, they were even religious people. Yet the trials they faced did not produce fruit. They did not persevere. Their trials only stifled their growth only drove them away from God. Yet for those who Jesus calls the good soil, the trials they face do just the opposite. The more we face obstacles, the more we learn to rely and trust on God, the better prepared we are to stand strongly the next time that we are afflicted. Think about a drill sergeant and the grueling obstacle course that he has for his men. Why does he subject them to this? Is it not to develop men who are able to persevere and withstand real trials of battle? In the same way God uses our trials in our life to test us, and to develop godly character and a steadfast and unshakable trust in him. And as the hymn says, we are by nature prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. So God intervenes. He brings us into our trials And he does it to develop a steadfast trust in his spiritual children. It's in this darkness of our trial that we truly see the exceeding brightness of God's grace. Now, if James were to end his discourse on trials right here, this would be encouragement enough for us. However, James reveals to his readers that God is working much more than just perseverance through their trials. James 1.4 reads, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Indeed, steadfastness in faith, without a doubt, is a great benefit. But it's not the end. God's purpose is not so short-sighted. It's but a necessary step to an even greater result. For God is preparing us for a day when there will be no more trials for us to persevere through. As Gordon Ketty put it, if perseverance is the journey, completeness is the destination. With regard to the work that God is doing in our trials, James encourages us that the testing of our faith has more than one effect. It has this immediate effect of producing steadfastness, but it also has its full effect or a perfect result as as the New American has it. We are promised that when we are steadfast in our trials, when our faith is not shaken by them, but is strengthened by our trials, that God will achieve his ultimate purpose in these things. And that is to bring his saints to the fullness and the perfection of spiritual maturity. Notice that again, James begins verse 4 with another imperative. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect. It's another directive to action. But this time it's not the believer who's performing the action, It's not the believer who's completing the work. It's steadfastness that's working in the believer through these trials. Yet the believer is still commanded to let steadfastness have its full effect. I think the idea here is that this work of steadfastness is being worked into you through these trials. But we're commanded to to let it, to allow it, if we can put it that way, to, to not resist the work of steadfastness. Now, I'm sure many of us 
have been in the same situation as I have where you go to use your computer and you turn it on and then a message pops up and it says, update available. And knowing that this update is going to bring added security to your computer and other features that are desirable, you click that button that says update. And then your screen goes blank and you have this little scroll bar that moves just ever so slowly across the screen. And often underneath this progress bar is a little message that says, do not unplug computer, update in progress, do not disconnect from the internet. Now, if we're being honest, sometimes this progress bar does not move as quickly as we'd like across the screen. Five minutes turns into 10 minutes, and sometimes if you're like me, you walk away, you think I'm going to come back after I get a drink and see where it's at, and it's not going anywhere. However, as tempting as it is for you to, to pull the plug, to close your laptop and stick it in your bag, you know that if you interrupt that process when it's 60%, you're not going to get 60% of the system update. You're going to be right where you started, except with hours of your life wasted. You know that for this process to finish its work, you have to let it finish its work. And that's a similar idea here with this imperative. That when we resist the work that this testing of our faith is doing here, humanly speaking, we're not letting it achieve its full effect. And we can resist this work in many ways. We can resist it by responding in a godless way to our trials. We resist this work by letting our anxieties by letting our fears drive our responses to trial instead of finding that settled contentment. In a way, James is repeating what he's already said in verse 2. Count these things as joy, be steadfast in counting them as joy, and these trials will work to their full and perfect end. Of course, divinely speaking, if God is indeed refining us through our trials, it's impossible for us to resist this work, just as it's impossible for us to resist the work of his saving grace. As one translation has it, steadfastness must have its full effect. Now, I'm not ashamed to say that I enjoy listening to classical music. Maybe you knew that about me. One of my favorite composers to listen to, among others, is Franz Schubert. And he's perhaps most well known for his vocal pieces and his piano literature, but his symphonic pieces are also well worth listening to. And perhaps one of his most well-known symphonies is his Symphony Number no. 8. And I listened to it yesterday with our family. And that first movement in particular is it's captivating, it's dramatic, it's lyrical. And there are many who love it who don't even regularly listen to classical music. I urge you to, to, to listen to it as well. And in my opinion, it rivals the beauty of many of Beethoven's own symphonies. However, there's one thing that has kept this symphony from achieving that same masterpiece status to say Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and that's that Schubert never finished it. And to this day, the symphony is known around the world as the unfinished symphony. The first two movements of the piece were fully completed, masterfully finished, and yet the last two only exist in little scraps and parchment. And there's no conclusive answer as to why Schubert never finished this symphony, yet it remains one of the greatest disappointments of classical music that this work was never brought to its completion. Now, God does not have an unfinished symphony. God does not leave his work unfinished. He finishes what he starts. Just as Paul encourages his, his um, readers in Philippi, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what is this full effect that James is writing about? Well, he says it positively and he says it negatively. Positively, that you may be perfect and complete. Stated negatively, that you may be lacking in nothing. So what does James mean by perfect? Well, I believe that there's both a a present and a future element to this promise of being perfect. In terms of what it means to be perfect in this lifetime, we certainly cannot understand this to mean sinlessness. For we know that we'll never achieve sinless perfection in this lifetime. The, the NIV translates this as mature and complete. And think again to the work of a goldsmith who has labored to refine his ore into a pure and precious metal, and now he's got this nugget of gold and silver in his hands. 
but he continues to labor over it. He wants to form it and shape it. He polishes it. He doesn't want any, any type of deformity on it. And he turns it over in his hands. He examines it from all angles. He shines a light on it and scrutinizes it. He pours all his effort, all his skill and craftsmanship into this work so that it is free of defect and truly lacking in nothing. And so God also works in his saints through the testing of their faith to bring them to the same well-rounded spiritual maturity, to the same uprightness of character. Sinclair Ferguson, speaking of the testing of our faith, says, It proves our faith. It polishes our graces. It causes faith to shine in the world in the face of adversity. So James is encouraging these dispersed brothers and sisters that God is using these present trials to remove their spiritual impurities, to bring them closer and closer to spiritual maturity, and to mold them in their character and in their virtue into the likeness of his own son Jesus. But of course, we also have to recognize that this promise of perfection also has a, a future element to it as well. The fullness of this work will not reach its conclusion of perfection and completion until we are glorified with Christ. Yet Jesus tells his disciples that they must be perfect even as their heavenly Father is perfect. We are to strive towards that goal, not to fight against the work that God is doing in us in our trials. And though we know that we're never going to reach perfection in this lifetime, we are nonetheless to set the perfect example of Christ before us at all times. Instead of being discouraged by our trials, we should rejoice that God is working in us so that we would indeed receive the crown of life. And James alludes to this later on in, in chapter 1. This looking ahead, the, the anticipation of God completing his work in us, the promise of true sinless perfection. This is the source, of, the source of hope that enables all believers in the Lord Jesus to consider all joy when they meet various trials. We don't just look forward to having joy someday when our trials are done and these things are behind us, but there is a, a future and a present element to this joy. The Christian life is to be marked by joy even presently, even in the midst of our trials. Our perspective is to be fixed upon God's eternal work in us. And to quote Paul again, as he writes in 2 Corinthians, For we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so for believers in the Lord Jesus, this needs to be a, an encouraging thing for us. We need to be encouraged that we are of exceedingly high value to God. You endure the testing of your faith because you are precious, more precious than gold to your heavenly Father. And even remember this morning's sermon as, as Pastor Hoffmeyer was up here and we read through 1 Peter 2.4, he said that we are living stones rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And just as the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives, just as the Lord prunes every branch that bears fruit, that it may bear more fruit, so he also tests the faith of his children out of the abundance of his love. And this should be a great encouragement to you when you find yourself in a time of trial. Remember that it was out of God's love that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross. It was out of the richness of his mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us that we are made alive together with Christ. And it's also out of the abundance of love that he brings this work of sanctification through our trials to its perfect and complete end. You are of great value to your heavenly father. So let this be the source and the fountain of finding that joy in your trials. Remember, joy is not at the end of this chain of events. And even in these verses, James puts it right at the beginning. It permeates all three of these verses. They don't just promise joy, they call for joy. We can't avoid trials, but we can respond to them appropriately. 
We don't need to wonder how we're to respond to trials. We don't need to respond the same way that the world does to trials. God has given us a clear, practical language. He's given us a how-to guidebook in these verses. So all believers need to purpose to work at responding with faith, with trust in God's goodness, with a mind that looks to the glory of God and the future glorification of all his saints. And for those who are unbelievers, those who have not put their faith in Christ, remember who this promise is made to. He writes to his brothers. James writes to those who are his spiritual brothers, to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, to those who have their sins forgiven. The work of perseverance and the work of perfection, they're not promised to everybody for their, as, as they face trials. The same end is not going to be brought for believers and unbelievers alike. Though every person, regardless of their spiritual condition, is going to face trial, this promise is for God's saints alone. And maybe you can stiffen your upper lip, and you might be able to put on a happy face through life's up and downs. But apart from Christ, you will never truly know this joy in this life or the next. Yet this joy is not withheld from any who would truly seek it. This joy is promised to all who repent from their sins, to all who believe in Jesus. And it is only through Jesus alone that those who labor and are heavy laden are promised rest. So Jesus calls all who hear this gospel message to respond, to take his yoke upon them. As we remember, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So let us pray today that God would be pleased, even today, even this hour, to call those here who do not know this rest, those who do not know this joy, to put their faith in Jesus. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess, Lord, that it is easy to cry out, Lord, why are these things happening? Lord, in our times of trial, Lord, the, the genuineness of our faith is, is exposed. Lord, our, our own weaknesses are exposed. And yet, Lord, we are thankful for the, the loving care that you give to your children, that you do not leave us alone, Lord, but you are working through these things. We thank you, Lord, that your work is not one that will only last in this lifetime, but that you are working a perfection into your beloved children. Lord, we thank you that you are molding us day by day through our trials to be made into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us going forward, Lord, that we would indeed be able to find a greater trust in you that you are using these trials, Lord, for our good, for your glory. We pray, Lord, that the, um, the directives that we're given here in James, Lord, would be things that we take to heart, that we apply them, Lord, that you would strengthen your saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.